go. Go. <laughs> and we're in. So, firstly, welcome back to the Hidden Power podcast after this slight hiatus when life, as sometimes happens, got in the way of, of our regular pulse of weekly broadcasts. Is God the Biosphere with me, Philip Tottenham, and with my co host, Ed Straw, who's wearing a Breton top today. Ah, yes. Hello. And I, ga- I gather you're uh, teaching a Ukrainian professor of mathematics English, and in return, he's teaching you bivocation and catastrophe theory. Catastrophe. I mean, it's got the makings of a novel, doesn't it? I think we're both highly attuned to the faintly absurd uh, nature of this exchange. But uh, it's good to, to have a connection with, you know, the systems thinking in the podcast, with what we're doing in our English language exchange. Brilliant. So this week, I think we're really into thinking back across the series and where we've come from and where we're going. Where we've come from is, is those five episodes. We're trying to get a picture in episode one of the of avoidance and the addiction systems to which we are entrained. And then we looked at the power of nature, and we then in particular thought about the nature and meaning of God based on, I'm going to forget her name, Ed, Lynn Lynn White's uh, environmental ethics kind of standpoint as, as, you know, our our religious demeanor being essential to fixing what our religious demeanor of the past had, had done to the biosphere. So with that in mind, we got into rituals and superstitions and how they both hinder and help us. And this week, we're thinking back on all that. And as always, rather thinking about what in practical terms we can do and where in practical terms we can take this. And what struck me, and I think Ed is broadly in agreement, is that Uh our next port of call is to look at these constitutional elements, these elements of creed and these codes of behavior, and maybe start down that path for the next series. And in particular, I found myself thinking of um, how in economics, the household is a fundamental unit and how it's in the household that we exist. It's through the household that we purchased and dump so much. And so, therefore, in the context of a household or perhaps in a family, the two things are sometimes the same, sometimes not. Perhaps we could think about that as a a forum for these principles and practices and for some kind of manifesto and code of behavior. And while Ed's work has been very much focused on systems of state and governance, on the broader scale, it struck me that if everybody learns to adopt codes of behavior, this will bleed into the workplace. So it starts with individuals and it starts with building sort of coalitions around, for example, your house, your workplace, your street, and all the things we've discussed over the past series. And history says that we may feel that we have no power, but that actually those small changes of attitude and then behaviour that come about do have the power to build and to permeate throughout society. And I think one of the emails we had from 
David Smith that we've commented on in the past was it was about the 1850s, sort of give or take, where there was a desire to reject essentially a lot of the corrupt practices that were going on and to institute a more moral, if you like, or ethical code of behaviour. And that certainly found its way into government, Mm. not least through the Northcote Trevelyan proposals for the way in which civil servants should be selected on merit. And we've discussed merit in the past and where that took us. But it was definitely a move forward from, oh, I'll appoint my mates. Mm. So if people are sitting there thinking, oh, well, you know, it's all too difficult, actually, in a way, it's not. This is where it starts. And it's interesting because, you know, as a part of my process in doing these podcasts with you, Ed, I've attended a couple of systems thinking functions online. And one of them was called systems convening, and it was highlighting people who didn't necessarily think of themselves as systems thinkers, who nonetheless ultimately were using systems thinking approaches to convene groups of people, you know, whether that was uh, in the context of legal issues and social disinclusion in Cambodia, or there was victims of uh, war and particularly rape in Nigeria. You know, these were people who'd just crossed the divide, talked to people and got groups of people together in order to talk about things and get things going. And it seems to me that this is something that with a small increase in skill anyone can do, you know, anyone can go out and start to take the initiative. And it's not always easy and it doesn't always feel comfortable, but I think it's always tremendously satisfying. Yeah, and we should say in the book that everyone, every child, every baby is born with uh, systemic sensibilities. Yes. And actually then often it's uh, schools and society and economics which drives those out of us. Would you like to just sort of develop what we mean by systemic sensibilities? I know that we have talked about it in the past, but you know, in what sense does a baby or a young child have sensibilities that, for example, an indoctrinated adult might not? They ask the question, why? Mm. You know, why is that man stood in the middle of field picking poppies? I mean, embarrassing ones, why is that person fat? Mm. The classic one that I ever heard, why time mummy? So they're constantly exploring. And the why question to get behind the obvious thing that's just gone wrong. Articulating and responding to what you see as opposed to suppressing it, which is what, of course, many of us do 90% of the time because things aren't relevant or they're too much trouble or you're too used to to being rebuffed or whatever it may be. I mean, that's what can happen with parenting. You know, you, you get fed up with the why questions and so you enter into a diversion, you know, oh, look at that interesting toy over there. How about playing with that? And of course, schools do that. Um, Well, actually, you know, forget the whys. Here's the national curriculum. Bang, 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 bang. Mm. So people get schooled in uh, suppressing their inquisitive nature and the classic thing of thinking about their thinking. Right. So this is why am I thinking this? I feel like we're getting into the question of governance as being primarily about mindset. You know, the, the, yeah. and we, we think of gov- governments as somebody else who does something to us, mostly restricting us and taxing us. Whereas what mm. we're really trying to drive towards is a question of governance 
as something that we decide for ourselves in conversation with mm-hmm. people around us. And yeah. that this sense of being awake and responsive to the world around us is fundamental as a mindset to mm. progress in that field, no matter where you are. And that, as you describe it, it being absolutely fundamental to dealing with climate change and pollution and all the rest mm. of it. Each of us in our small ways which will then come together in bigger ways as to how we are going to change our ways of living and how that might then be put into, if you like, each of our own family constitutions mm. as to, and codes and creeds. as to but It sounds like this, what we're talking about is, is sort of somewhere between personal development from or, or redevelopment, you know, rediscovering what you are as a person mm. that has been lost to one's mm. socialization on the one hand. And then there's a kind of a mental health element, the context of therapy and so on. One encounters this whole question of being able to articulate clearly what one sees. And again, I suppose that feeds mm. into your point of, of children having a systemic sensibility that a systemic sensibility could be framed in terms of a definition of mental health and adequate development as an adult. Yeah. No, I think that's a very good point and a much more contented place to be Mm. rather than being on the receiving end of all of these forces and controls and bureaucracies and all the rest of it, of understanding why they are behaving as they Mm. are at least gives you some respite from the annoyance. Yeah. It's funny. Today I saw a... a friend of mine who I had no idea had any issues and he's a very effective accomplished character he posted his year sober so he's been doing Alcoholics wow. Anonymous for a year and it reminded me of course of our discussion of you know how the 12-step process of dealing with addiction might help us in overcoming the prisons of our minds that keep us suppressed and entrained within the addiction systems of the the monetary system, you know, the pollution system and so on. And consumerism particularly. Yeah, I mean, this is an idea that you came out with, Philip. And, you know, initially I'm thinking, hang on, what's Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12-step process got to do with sorting climate change? And then you go through the 12 steps and you think, there's a good point. As well as looking back on these previous episodes where we're looking forward to, to the next series, which might be something like Constitution, Creed and Codes of Behaviour. And we particularly want feedback from listeners on any of these things we're throwing out that might be, that might go under the umbrella of constitution, creed, and codes of behavior. Because I think that a discussion on how we might develop a constitution for for a family and and a home is, is kind of where we want to get to. That being a group of people who are focused on establishing a good mindset and then bringing that out to their places of work and and so on and you do meet people who inspire one with their good outlook on things and i suppose an aspiration would be to be one of them the danger is that you know this can come across as so much hair shirt and while our intention is certainly not hair shirt our intention is to encourage people to consider these things and whether actually they would like to do these things. I mean, you know, a a very obvious way, what's the household's connectedness with nature? Mm. 
what is the mindset in the household in relation to nature and how close is it, you know, ideally to understanding that God is the biosphere. And if that's a bit too much of a, a leap, then understanding the power and value of nature to heal us, to give us physical health, to give us mental health, to give us medicines, as well as simply the wonders Mm. of its existence. In terms of God as the biosphere, the framing of the 12-step process is belief in a higher power, acceptance of your inability to deal with addiction, and faith in a higher power, which could be your subconscious or your society whatever it is. So when we use the term God, we use it very sort of gently and loosely. But, you know, having said that, religions do have a long history of harnessing intelligence and power. And mostly, as we've been saying, we have more intelligence and power than we might think. I mean, often that intelligence is badly harnessed. And that seems to me to be what marks people who appear intelligent from people who perhaps don't appear intelligent Mm. you know the capability of keeping that horse (laughs) harnessed as it were but ritual superstition religion have certainly been very effective at harnessing human capability where in the modern era intelligence seems to have been hijacked by science maybe which is good in many ways but it means that power has somewhat seeped into commerce and yeah. is perhaps less under control, certainly is not under the control of re- religion or of, of a moral code. Yeah, completely. But talking there about power and the power we have, another thought in re- relation to the household constitution is consumer power, mm. which we've talked about a lot in the past. You know, and the example I used going back years was the e-numbers and people becoming aware because the information was published about the effect of various additives to sweets and hyperactivity and all the rest of it. And people stopped buying those things which had those bad chemicals Mm. in them. And we can do that across the board in relation to what we buy. And being conscious of, for example, where a chicken has come Mm. from, uh, how it's been reared, the pollution that's been produced because of the way in which it's been reared, often unpleasant conditions for the chicken, the use of fertilizers Mm. and coming from fossil fuels and all the rest of it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I mean, it depends on the family's income, obviously, but if we have the income, is that something that we want to continue buying? Well, it's, it's because... voting with your wallet, isn't it? And, you know, a bit like your profound respect for people of faith, you know, you don't necessarily share the, this straightforward belief in God and worship and so on. And yet you see how, how it works so well for people. And I feel the same way about veganism. You know, I, I love cheese and meat and so on. And yet when I see people who are, very thoughtful about how they shop and have very clear red lines when it comes to yeah. um, you know what is acceptable and what isn't. I do find myself thinking, well, you know, I need to be I need to be more like that. <laughs> and again, maybe that's where our discussion of habit formation might help us. The other thing to add in there is that day zero was how we behaved in the past. Day one is now how we can behave in the future. 
I see this as a migration. So if someone eats meat seven days a week, try eating meat six days a week. If someone has never tried a vegetarian meal, well, try a vegetarian well, meal. Well, that's a very interesting um, point. I don't know if I ever told you about how I ended up smoking a lot less. But essentially, yeah. it was by giving up, giving up. So in my 20s, I had this sort of boom and bust approach to smoking. And it was obviously completely stupid, but I ended up smoking a lot and then not smoking and, you know, having short, successful times not smoking. But it didn't really work yeah. for me. And then in time, I realized that I just needed to stop giving up smoking and just try and smoke a little bit less. And so yeah. I kind of concentrated more sometimes and less other times, but it works in the end. It's kind of over the period of many years. I yeah. now find sometimes I do accept a cigarette, but most of the time I, I find that my appetite has more or less disappeared. Yeah. Based on that, as you say, it's the, the migration of um, the slow acceptance of where you are. I remember somebody saying, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the beating yourself up about it that allows you to do it. So you've got to stop, yeah. you know, enjoy it. Do it and enjoy it and, and do it deliberately. And then as soon as you're not enjoying it, don't do it. Yeah, exactly. And that also brings in another point about informed choices. And one of the things that all, all of this has suffered from is the huge lack of information. That I think that huge lack of information is now replaced mm -hmm. with actually quite a lot of information about where things have come from and how they're grown and the effects on the environment of, he says, holding up his smartphone <laughs> of the minerals that are used in that and the conditions for those workers. So there's a lot more information around. And in a way, you know, you had all of the information at hand about the downsides of smoking, which encouraged you to change your behavior. Mm. And it's that same thing now about pretty much most things that we do and certainly buy about making informed choices right. about those. And if you like, not the, the sort of out of sight, out of mind. Well, I mean, it struck me that the out of sight, around. out of mind is fundamentally where the system's thinking comes in because, you know, it's closing those loops, as I've now learned to say from attending wow. talks, mm -hmm. uh, you know, closing the loop, on where what you're using comes from and where it's going and being clear about that is obviously immensely powerful and yeah. gaining a sort of a consciousness of, of the importance of that as we gain more consciousness will become easier to draw those lines. I've written down here the other end we've used the product or whatever it is I called it awareness beyond the bin mm. so uh, the classic phrase that someone used to me after doing a process around climate change. He said, I've become aware of what I put down the sink. Mm. And it's being aware that that stuff is going I down the sink. I think in the past, people were perhaps were more inclined to treat disposal as a kind of collection. So as you get rid of things, you're collecting them for further use. You know, I sort of when I remember when we got this house in the garage, there there was a lot of wood piled up. It just struck me when I saw it. You know, of course, of course, you keep wood, but plenty of people yeah. would throw it out because it's like, oh, this stuff is in the way. Um, yeah, and having a better systems for collection, you know, it's yeah, absolutely. And and I mean that is an area actually where we're still immensely uninformed. Mm. I've 
no idea. I think I'm supposed to wash the recycling before you put it out. I think that hard plastics go separate from soft plastics. I think that I can put Janjar lids that are metal in the metal bit, but I'm not terribly sure because they've got a bit of plastic mm. on the inside. Awareness beyond the bin yeah. as and to gra- what's grappling going to happen. It, it effectively. I mean, it's interesting. I saw an article about how people in Indonesia who get English rubbish in containers, which, I mean, that in itself is something to think about in terms of how yeah. the containers get there. But the, yeah. they were complaining because people weren't washing the recycling. So what was apparently supposed to happen was that people with very few means and who had to do such work, you know, they'd open up the container, the stuff would spew out, and then people would just pick through it, collecting whatever their thing was, whether it was sort of a certain type of plastic bottle or, you know, a certain type of tray or aluminium, whatever it might be. But they were complaining because the plastic was just too filthy um, and and too rotten for them to work with effectively. And it struck me that, well, of course, you know, how many people are just too, you know, they, they see the recycling as another bin, chuck it in, you know, it's like it doesn't yeah. really affect you. But if you, if again, if the loop was closed, if people were more aware of people at the other end and how precisely their uh, recycling was being dealt with, then there would be an obvious motivation just to, to go the extra step. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the, the circular economy and uh, sort of that understanding that, yeah, if, if we do this here, then that will have benefits downstream. There's a kind of a, an element of this which goes back to not just Christianity, but Buddhism as well. And that's the question of nurturing and ultimately of sharing love and showing love. And if we get back to the deification of the biosphere, which is the thing we've been mm-hmm. talking about, it sort of struck me that this falls within a systemic sensibility. The primary thing isn't nature. The primary thing is, is the, I mean, if you like, nurture. So it, it, the primary mm. thing is, is having that nurturing outlook on everything, you know, that, mm. that you, you can kind of support these things and help them along mm. and be dedicated to life, to an appreciative of life, you know, in, in all its mm. many and various forms. And when you do wash the recycling and don't throw the rubbish out of the car window, personally, I feel better about it. Yes, it brings us back to the question of governance. And I seem to remember, I don't know where I heard this, possibly in school or something, but I just remember this analogy of the long spoons. And Mm. there's this idea of hell being people's hands are these long spoons they can't feed themselves with. You know that they 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 just they can pick up the food, but then they can't get it to their mouths, and um, mm. and this is hellish because they all obviously starve. And then heaven is exactly the same, but the difference is that people feed each other, and mm. so that collaboration. I thought it was quite a nice image of how you know a, a system yeah, can cool. can work well. And in fact, quite recently, I saw a a post about a professor, and I don't know if this is true, but it sounded good anyway, and it made a very similar point, that he handed out balloons to his lecture theatre, so whatever it was, 500,000 people, something like that, and everyone put their name on the balloon, and then they stuck it into the corridor. And the corridor was closed at both ends, and it was full of balloons. And then he challenged people to go and find their balloon, and obviously it was completely impossible. And then he said, well, okay, this time, just go and find any balloon and then see if you can find that person because they'd all written their names on the balloons. And p- everyone had their balloon in no time whatsoever. So the, 
point being that there's this very simple uh, adjustment suddenly made it very very easy to do and you know so i think some of these things are so simple you know the difference between looking for your own balloon or or finding somebody with their balloon is so subtle almost that you wouldn't see it and yet Mm. in the context of of systems and particularly of of feedback as in feedback loops um you know and compounding of effects such a small change could be so massive yeah 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 and emphasizes also i mean both your points there uh the power of collective action mm. and, and the power of working collectively in terms of your neighbours mm. and working together or your community. And the example uh, of Preston that has this scheme that we've talked about of emphasising uh, through the power of public purchasing, buying locally mm. and both buying locally, which cuts down obviously air miles and transport miles and all the rest. You're talking of it, about sorry, buying locally food, anything okay. actually. So, so the, the Preston model, I mean, I think particularly uh, started off with food, right? But was uh, trying to, if you like, privilege mm-hmm. um, and and help and support local businesses of any sort producing anything to supply the public sector in and around Preston. Mm. And that scheme seems to have been very effective. And there's another example of people acting collectively and together to produce benefits for the local economy, Mm. for climate change, for local employment, benefits for thriving local businesses. But it does very much emphasise the point of how money back into any economy as opposed to going out of the economy, is so powerful. And unfortunately, we see money as the main signifier of value. But if you take money out of the question of value and look at values and, and again, the social glue of looking after each other in, in this kind of nurturing mm. context. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, what's the alternative? Well, the alternative is, you know, we carry on doing what we're doing and we go and buy it from a supermarket, which is typically part of some immense chain, um, which is listed on various stock markets, which is driven by the global monetary system to create more profits and uh, without regard for the environment. You know, <laughs> well, um, do we want to go on doing that? But I think not. Exactly. I think not. Just to chuck yeah. into people's thinking caps about, well, how would their family constitution work? One is, and I think this is absolutely crucial, not believing the news media, Mm. changing their sources of Mm. news media. And we talked about quite a lot of those in terms of uh, the conversation, positive news, all sorts of things. The book, We Are What We Read, and extracting ourselves from that stranglehold Mm. of the traditional news media and the way in which, I mean, news in quotes, because so much of it is not news, is presented, and remembering that the traditional news media are very much part of the preferential lobbying mm. problem. Port, and in trains, uh, I suppose, as well, because, you know, there's a kind of a, a self-censorship that presumably goes on that isn't exactly deliberate or explicit, yeah. but is an essential effect of the system. Yeah, and, and if a lobby, whether it's an oil lobby or an agricultural lobby or whatever it might be, is powerful, and most of them are, 
it will be feeding the news media and the news media will often be regurgitating what they're fed. Any reading is, in a sense, reading the enemy, or at least it's reading, you know, you're reading somebody with an agenda and what is their agenda? You know, for some people, you know, people like, um, say, Karl Marx or or Jean-Paul Sartre, you know, these people are just controversialists. It's not that they didn't have some good points, but their main agenda was being controversial. And I think that sort of undermined the power of what they had to say, which in both cases was often very pertinent and important. Very occasionally I'll listen to the news. I try and avoid it. It's bad for my me and my <laughs> mental health. But when I do, I'm sort of always looking behind the words, yeah. uh, looking underneath at what agenda yes. they are. What, what is uh, this joker with. trying to do, really? On a similar theme... I think, well, I hope that uh, families, households will think about voting Mm. and how their vote can change things. And we're stuck with this first-past-the-post system for now, um, which, you know, therefore, I don't like that lot, so I'm going to have to vote for this lot. Seems to the dirty, really, isn't it? The more people that are voting differently Mm. from the to established mainstream parties, the quicker that duopoly will wither, yeah. as has happened in many countries, the quicker we'll get much more of the Greens and alternative and more diverse voices into Parliament. There's more certainty, as in you, you sort of start with uncertainty and deliberation across a diversity of people and move with gingerly towards a, a more certain outcome that will work for everybody rather than particular parties and particular groups sort of lasering in and getting things done that kind of blow things up for everybody else. Forcing their particular agenda or ideology from a position of a minority vote on the rest of Mm. us. And countries with PR actually have much more stable... PR being proportional representation, yes. Proportional representation, yeah. People interested in that. We did do an episode on proportional representation in in Series 2, so it's worth checking back if you're interested in that. And the last thing I'd suggest in terms of the household constitution is to consider advocacy and persuasion as means of taking the discourse forward Mm, Rather than moralising and witch hunts, you know, you should do this. Um, one of the well, it's such a know, difficult best... thing, isn't it? It's like, to, to what extent do you model behaviour and sort of spread your demeanour that way? If you know, if you're in that kind of position, or to what extent do you argue the toss? You know, because it's it's about winning the war, not winning the battle, isn't it? So it's quite a difficult yeah. decision, and sometimes there's no really right answer this is the point when you know if you have got an argumentative wall in front of you well i mean one one way of uh, dealing with that is just to you know change the conversation mm. if i'm on form then i'll think beneath mm. what is being said so there's a position you know what is the interest and what is the need that this position is portraying yeah. and then i'll try and ask a question that gets underneath mm. that position in order to hopefully promote thought and fresh thinking yes. on the behalf of the person who is putting up a wall of argument. The final point, if it is the final point, it is just to say that households thinking about how they are going to be. Listeners could jot down their idea of 
what just principles maybe that they aspire to in their own households and send those to us. And what we'll try and do is evolve over the course of the next series, a model constitution. So maybe we'll start Mm. by reading out with whatever we have at the beginning Mm. and then hope to to get some listener feedback in evolving this into something that Mm. seems sensible for everybody. So until then, everybody, have a great summer. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you on the next series, Constitutions, Creeds, and Codes of Behaviour.